ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Now on with the show. I'm pleased to have Balaj Yarabek return to the podcast to update us on what's going on in Ukraine two years after the Maidan Revolution. Balaj Yarabek is a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where his research focuses on Ukraine and Eastern Europe. His most recent article is Reform and Resistance, Ukraine's Selective State. Here's Balaj Yarabek. We spoke about a year ago. Uh, about the fate of Minsk too. What is the status of the and its implementation a year later? Well, I I'm afraid the both the status and the implementation is pretty much the same like we talked like a year ago. <laughs> uh, meaning not too much has been done except one thing, uh, and I think that that was the main motivation, particularly the Europeans, but also the Ukrainian side to go into Minsk too, and that was essentially the ceasefire. Um, make sure uh, that the actual war which was going on. On, uh, is kind of ceased or stopped, um, and that largely. I mean, I, and I and I think in the Western commentaries you cannot really hear that that much. That you know the war essentially stopped, and uh, for about a year. And this is a big achievement for about a year. We're talking about how to mitigate, on what favor, and you know who should kind of be more inclusive um, when it comes to when it comes to the peace agreement. But essentially, we only talk about how to make the peace agreement work and how to make the reintegration work. So that is a big achievement, which which often overlooked. And uh, obviously, there is a lot of frustration. And because of the casualties, I think there is um, essentially now up to 10,000 people died on the Ukrainian side only. And most probably at least that much on the separatist side, since we don't have accurate information. So putting it into the context of how serious uh, the casualties and how serious the war damage is, uh, I think the ceasefire is an achievement. So uh, anything else, unfortunately, you know, like the, the Minsk II uh, agreement, the 12 points implementation is going really, really slow. None of the points are essentially being achieved per se. At the same time, you also cannot say that nothing happened with those points because, for example, when, you know, the ceasefire is largely hold, although there are still some casualties, but you cannot compare, you know, the, the weapon withdrawal is kind of going on, but it's, uh, you know, like the deadline was not met and the sides are accusing each other of and essentially proving that, you know, even on the Ukrainian side, there are some, but obviously the rebel side is much more, you know, the Russians, uh, the Russians kind of get out of Ukraine, but much less extent than, uh, than the Ukrainians would like to have, right? They still keeping special forces uh, and, and, their FSB and there obviously there is a there is a clear command on the rebel forces at the same time also the, the Russians are trying to do even more when it comes to the power consolidation and literally making sure that those rebels who don't agree with the Minsk agreements are not gone physically meaning either they are killed or they will be thrown or convinced to leave the separatist Donbass territories so you know like and obviously the Ukrainians really did try with the political package meaning the constitutional re- uh, reform and the constitutional changes but you know they also reached a certain limit it's very clear that Poroshenko 
and Kiev doesn't have the 300 votes in the current parliament. And this is obviously for various reasons, not only because Poroshenko doesn't want to have or Poroshenko doesn't have, but various sort of reasons, uh, you know, but they did try to, to fulfill the Minsk agreement as well. So, so you cannot really say, I mean, you know, it's kind of the, the glass is half full and half empty. You know, the, the process is going on. The results are not kicking in as uh, we or those who signed the Minsk agreement would like to see. But at the same time, the most important, again, stop the, stop the war and the casualties is still largely hold. So you would say that essentially despite foot dragging, the fact that the people aren't being killed and destruction isn't happening on a, on a, a war footing rate, this is an achievement in and of itself. Uh, it's still an achievement, exactly. Despite, you know, like I, I kind of, there is uh, the past few weeks we have been seeing uh, an increase in the fightings, I, I, I guess, because, you know, this is not an information which you would like to, you know, this is not what I know, but I guess it's the rebels mostly kind of expressing frustration, A, uh, with the Russians making political consolidation on their, on their own ranks, right? And B, and B, because Kiev was clearly showing no signs of com- complying with the Minsk agreement, meaning the constitutional reforms as well as the elections, right? We're not moving forward on the Kiev side. But, you know, the, the logical rebel reaction would be, okay, let's have the elections then and close this. You know, and on the contrary, the rebels said, okay, then we're going to wait. Right. Which for me, it was the, you know, like we're going to postpone our elections, so-called elections, at least until the Ukrainians are going to get the act together, which is clearly a sign that for them, the Minsk agreement is something which still holds. Right. The implementation, obviously, is, a yeah, it's, as you said, it's a, it's a food dragging, but, you know, the, the, the essence and the framework is still there. That's interesting to know, because there's always you hear a lot of maximalization in, in how this accord is seen, either it's working or it's not working rather than kind of taking a you know a more nuanced or even long-term view of it and appreciating the fact that you know at least people aren't dying at a high rate well yeah i mean I, there are some casualties again lately but again like compare what we had a year ago i think this is you know this is uh and you know like a, most of most of the deaths at least in the oc smm the, the monitoring and a verification mission is essentially due to the landlords uh you know like due to due to the fact that you know people you know it's a mistake and not not necessary uh you know, a hot action, a hot action, and and the exchange of the fires is is with light, light uh, weapons and not heavy artillery, which also showing that you know, for example, this, the the Minsk agreement is kind of in a slow space, slow pace, but still kind of being implemented. Now, it's also been two years since the Maidan revolution. What is your overall evaluation of how things have unfolded in Ukraine since? Well, I, you know, and this is a perhaps at least that much painful topic as as the, as the Donbas war and and the Minsk agreements, because you know here is something as well what the Ukrainians would obviously expect, or the West uh, would expect that there is going to be a different uh, situation now. Those that the Ukrainian elites are just proving that Ukraine is not governed simply because of the lack of revolutions, but despite of the revolutions, that you know they they are not capable or not willing to govern on behalf of the people, on behalf of. National or public interest, but much more seeing their own personal individual interest. And uh, unfortunately, the Maidan revolution, which is called the revolution of dignity, did not change that. Partly, you know, I think was was largely uh, the West and as well as the Ukrainians largely overlooked that how much this Maidan coalition was a very fragile one and how diverse it was. You know, it was the oligarchs, the civil society activists, you know, ordinary people, then the far right groups and, you know, pretty much everyone else kind of united business associations, you know, the small businesses, particularly the big business was managed to unite uh, two years ago against 
what they called the tyrant and the dictator, Viktor Yanukovych, who obviously made a lot of mistakes in the process, starting with the U-turn of the of the association agreement uh, until the January 16 so-called dictatorship laws, which essentially outlawed everyone who was in Maidan. And, you know, when you have the whole country on the Maidan, then you essentially outlaw pretty much everyone. So, you know, that was a, that was a, a, a cascade of escalation which Yanukovych did and which united everyone against him and in the end. But that was a very de facto, a very fluid coalition, which, you know, it didn't came together to change the country. It came together to get rid of Yanukovych. And there was no essential unity or no, even not even a close to an agreement what's going to happen after Yanukovych, right? And so in my reading, and I was following, I was following the situation, this was, I was always kind of raising with, with policymakers like, look guys, chill, calm down, because the issue is what next is just coming now. And there is no processes, right? Which essentially would lead to the Ukrainians to channel the various, the very diverse Ukrainian thoughts about what next into a coherent policy or, or coherent processes, which would lead to a, uh, lead to better policies. So instead, we wanted to believe that now everybody is united. Now Ukraine is united, particularly after the Russian aggression, uh, right? The annexation of Crimea and the Donbas war, Ukraine become a victim. So we extended the vast extended solidarity, uh, you know, and, and essentially the details are just lost into this big emotional issues. But they didn't, they didn't, the details didn't go away. The details are which essentially the local logic is and the corruption, the impunity that, uh, you know, you have uh, the collapse of the central authority over Maidan, uh, the fragmentation, the regional differences, the, again, the cacophony of various options, and there is no central or even a thought which would, which would give the Ukrainians a sense of coherence. Uh, you know, they are united against Russia, but they are not united on anything else beyond that. So once, you know, the Russian aggression and due to the Minsk agreements just went away, all this disunity or, or lack of coherence essentially is getting into the surface with the, the essentially lateral combination of economic, huge economic decline. Right. In 2015, we have been seeing 15% dip, recession, which is unprecedented in Europe uh, since the Second World War. Poverty rate is over 80% according to the UN standards, which is $5 a day. You know, so if you're putting it all together, these various feelings, emotions, and state of minds, and, and state of uh, pockets, then you have an exceptionally difficult situation. And that was how difficult the situation was simply not forcing. We're very much putting into the cliches how, you know, like we have to help Ukraine and without really knowing the details, our help essentially means, means for anything. Given this situation and the difficulties in the politics and, and trying to find a united direction and the economic problems, is this why there is this constant specter and rumors and maybe hopes and fears of a Maidan 3.0, like we saw this attempt for the anniversary last week, and then there were these strange attacks on Russian banks? I mean, what do you make of this? Is is this an important aspect of what's going on, or is just this merely a sideshow? Well, I mean, I, I think it was pretty clear clear this attempt of I don't know exactly what to be very frank right because we were saying like up to 100 people occupying a hotel and then a group of people OUN fighters right one of the national fighters vandalizing Russian banks as a kind of commemoration of the, the Maidan second anniversary which actually it was a quite weird thing and particularly when the head of the head of the group said now we really show the Russians who is a tough guy so it's just amazing to see really but but I think it's just showing how much the fragmentation and the disenfranchising 
is going on both between these groups as well as the rest of the population. It showed it's not going to be a third Maidan because both the Orange Revolution and the second Maidan or the Maidanists say had the popular support. Maybe again, not the whole country, but that particular uprising against Yanukovych had the support of the people, right? No other, no other third Maidan would essentially have the support for one single reason, because it would be even more violent than the second was. That the second violence is like, I don't want to overstate the violence. The second violence was ad hoc, right? It was a reaction. You know, the police attacked them, they attacked back them a Molotov cocktails, right? So it was it was more, uh, and, and then Yanukovych outlawed them, so they essentially they said, fine, then, you know, we are outlaws anyway, we have to go to jail or reverse, right? So there is, there is nothing we're going to change. So this particular episode showed how much there is no appetite for a third Maidan. Uh, there is fragmentation, disenfranchising, and there's a lot of frustration with the authorities, with the current authorities, the post-Maidan government. But people after Donbass know that any Maidan is going to be blood. It's going to be a civil war. It's going to be or a war against Russia. But this is not what they want, certainly, and this is not what they would support. And that is a big difference between Maidan and all the rumors about Maidan 3. This is just not going to happen. But obviously, it's also just showing that the civilization of choice, uh, the brackets as well, the so-called civilization of choice is so much lost in the frustration and the national, the nationalistic frenzy simply because civilization of choice when you're attacking the Russian banks is not really a civilization of choice, but even worse. You don't, this is not a European sign. This is not something which you can actually claim to, uh, to have. The Ukrainian government has been in turmoil for several weeks. Uh, a few key reformist ministers have resigned, and all of this culminated in failed no-confidence votes for Prime Minister Yatsenyuk. What's the context for all of this? Well, the context is exactly this de facto coalition of the Maidan is falling apart. And that that group, which was part put together by oligarchy group, by Western sympathizers, by civil society organizations, is essentially have very diverse uh, expectations. What exactly, what kind of reforms need to be happening? And those reform expectations or reform thoughts or plans are essentially also harboring with the personal interest, which is largely represented, or personal or oligarchic or big business interest, which is largely represented in the government. And all these interests are clashes. You can call it public, civic, big business, oligarchic, private, right? And the lack of coherence and the lack of, again, processes which would channel what a new Ukraine was essentially means in Ukraine is just, just showing that the misunderstanding is running so much deeper and deeper and deeper that essentially those who, who do not really have, have something else or better things to do, they are leaving just like Abramovichers and a couple of other people. Right. So those who have much less personal interest into this, meaning, you know, clearly Abramovichus was also frustrated because simply he cannot make a living out of his salary, which is essentially now 300 euros or so. You know, so you can you can run up to uh, buy a motivation to help your and change your country and all this for a certain level. But then once you cannot make the end living right and, and you, you live up on your reserves, which is pretty much the actually showcase of most of the Ukrainians by now. Just, just showing the, you know, the, the level of frustration, not of only Abramovich's, but this is a, this is a level of frustration of any ordinary Ukrainians as well. So, so these, these emotions and these frustrations are piling up. And then it's going to be a less and less potential of governing in this situation. So I guess if there is not going to be a major military outbreak, uh, of the conflict in the Donbas, uh, or anywhere else that these uh, these internal conflicts are going to pile up and there is going to be less and less governance and more and more emotions uh, in this process. And we're going to see these kind of conflicts in a lot of ways. Everyone watching the unfolding of this no confidence vote over uh, three days 
Everyone was saying at the time that Yatsunuk was going to fall, but he survived. What led to his last minute survival? Uh, I'm not sure any, everyone, because I was pretty sure he's not going to fall. <laughs> uh, so for a simple reason, because parliamentary, the, the biggest thought for the entire political elites is that nobody, essentially no one, including Yulia Tymoshenko, which is an interesting case, wants early elections. Uh, and everybody has, everybody's trying to avoid early elections for various reasons, right? For example, Poroshenko is not ready yet. And Poroshenko also don't want to take or doesn't want to take more responsibility for the reforms and governance simply because he needs to scapegoat. And, you know, and Yatsenyuk is, is, is making that situation, providing that situation perfect. So Yatsenyuk obviously would be the loser of any early elections. They didn't even, his party didn't even went for the local government election simply because they would lose big time, right? They're between 1% and 2% of the polls. So obviously he doesn't want to have elections. Now, Yudlu Kimashenko would, you know, would, would think that, okay, we're going to benefit from early elections. At the same time, she does not have the money for a solid campaign. And Batkovshina, her party, was very much supposed to be a strong winner of the local government elections, which did not capitalize simply because all the other parties, uh, particularly in the regions, overspent her. So the lack of money is a crucial factor for her as well. Samopomich has win a lot of seats, and essentially the party has a big consolidation problem because it's a new party. You know, there is different interest as well, and, and obviously Sadovi has a different interest than most of the party because Sadovi keeps... He's harboring his own presidential mission. Opposition bloc, again, was harboring at the local government elections a much better results. They were expecting to win. It didn't happen, right? So they're always rebranding. And this rebranding takes time because as the opposition bloc, they too much look like a pro-Russian puppet. So, you know, so if if you look at the little bit of the details, every party has an interest not to have an early election. In this current situation, when you have such a thing, you know, like, and then you have to have a certain coalition keep going, and without Yatsenyuk and his party, that coalition wouldn't work. That was no other solution that tried to keep this coalition together. Into this local framework, there was a big push of the, mostly from the Americans and from the West. I mean, not only from the Americans, the West really wants, the West sees that if this coalition is going to go away, which we tooted um, as the best ever government in Ukraine, right? So at one point, this is about safe, face saving in the West as well. At the same time, I don't think that there's going to be a better government. It's going to be even more fragmented government. If this government is unable to, this is incapable to do reforms, then who, which one will? Right. So so there is a wasted interest that, that this government should keep continue, although I think personally that this is a mistake in the Western policy, because in this case, it's clearly a new elections would essentially at least provide us a new situation and not just to us, but to Ukraine as well. And if this, this is clearly that this government is mirrored uh, with the personal and oligarchic interest. And, you know, the funny situation is funny in the current context, meaning in brackets, right? That, you know, when and the, the post-arrange government with Tymoshenko did not provide any steps or any concrete steps or big steps toward the European integration. It was the Yanukovych government who delivered the association agreement and the rest. So it's, it, it's for me, like given putting this into the past, in the context of the past 15, 20 years, when we see the Western, you know, integration 
integration or, or the Euro-Atlantic Euro integration, it's not necessarily these governments would be the most capable to deliver. You know what I mean? So you know, the, the other side is also like proved in the past five, six years that it's not only capable, but it's only interested in to do so. Now, now other commentators said that Yatsenyuk's survival also shows how much oligarchs still hold sway over Ukrainian politics. There was even some suggestion that there was some sort of backroom deal concocted between some of the oligarchs to keep Yatsenyuk in power. Uh, what do you think of this assessment? Well, sure. I mean, yeah, clearly, Popular Front was funded by various oligarchs, right? Was helped by various oligarchs and clearly representing various oligarchs' interests. Various oligarchs, I mean, Akhmetov, Kolomoisky, and a couple of others as well who, you know, like essentially Yatsenyuk is rumored to being enriched by uh, rent-seeking, but not that much on the government only, but essentially representing oligarchs' interests and taking the rent for them, from, from them. Look, I mean, the, the balance uh, was all, always the, the, the post-Soviet Ukraine was essentially working when somebody was able to keep the oligarchs in check. It was mostly Kuchma, right? The former president Kuchma, who did not become an oligarch himself, but he was an arbiter for the oligarch. And ever since we have a problem, and before him was a problem, and ever since after him, there is a problem that either there is an incapable arbiter like Yushchenko himself, or there is Yanukovych, who wants to essentially wanted or was on the way to become an oligarch himself, or now Poroshenko, who is an oligarch himself, or big business representative himself, his own business, right? So he has a conflict of interest vis-a-vis the other oligarchs. So th- this this equilibrium, this Kuchma-based uh, or the Kuchma system equilibrium, uh, has been ever since from 2004 is broken, and that's one of the one of the reasons, uh, and not only the oligarchs themselves, but one of the reasons that there is no equilibrium between the state and the oligarch is broken. But we having these uh, this uh, these problems uh, and, and shenanigans when it comes to Ukraine. This actually raises a, a question, and, and it's a quite a controversial question because. One could take what you're saying to kind of a logical conclusion that what's missing in Ukraine is something like a Putin to keep things under, to to create this balance between the state and the oligarchs. I wouldn't go with Putin, but essentially what we are missing in Ukraine is a state which would able to assert a state interest, right, vis-a-vis the oligarchs. That essentially is the deoligarchization. That is the, you know, that is that is the essence of the Western policy to making sure that there is something else in Ukraine than, you know, than the oligarch rule. And, you know, so if you replace Putin, I would agree, as the issue is who is going to make sure that there is going to be a state interest. So one of the, you know, one of the solution, both for the civil society representatives as well as as well as for uh, for for the West is a technocratic government. Because simply, this is the technocratic government is what you're saying is Putin, right? Is making sure that there is a government which would represent, you know, the interest of let's say the public, right? Making delivering meaningful reform, and it's actually a question what meaningful reform in a current context means. Because in a lot of ways, I'm not sure. That uh, something which we can call, you know, the privatization is essentially is the only solution for everything. You know, it's I, I think I think Ukraine's biggest biggest problem is the lack of state, uh, not you know not the, the lack of private sector is the is the rule of the game, and essentially a social contract. So it's it, the relationship between the private sector or big businesses, if you like, and the state, as well as the relationship between citizen and the state, which is broken. Uh, and it's it's not broken just to Maidan. Maidan was just the last shot. 
was a lot outbreak, which which brought the whole system together. But it is broken since Kuchma left. You know, and that is the that is a kind of an irony uh, of the whole situation that this is nothing new. This is what we have seen in the past ten years. That's the reason why Maidan, after ten years after the revolution, was break pretty much down the remaining of the system which Kuchma was building. Now, I, I want to talk about the Western influence and, and, and its role here, because there have been scattered reports in the Ukrainian press about the direct influence of American f- officials over Poroshenko, and particularly uh, named usually our Vice President Joe Biden and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Piat. Uh, in fact, in a recent article on uh, ZN.UA, said that in a February 12th meeting with Poroshenko, Biden, quote, categorically spoke against Yatsenyuk's dismissal. And the article even directly called Poroshenko an American puppet. Uh, what is the extent of U.S. influence over the Ukrainian government? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a Yulia Mostovay article who I, uh, you know, who I, I, I really respect a lot. I mean, this is, uh, she's one of Ukraine's, one of the best analytical journalists. And, uh, and uh, her newspaper is really the, the best read, uh, uh, or at least one of the best. Now, you, you know, it's a clearly an exaggeration. Right. It is why I'm saying so. You know, it is an activation as much that the that, that it was the U.S. who was essentially uh, did the regime change and, and did the coup d'état against against Yanukovych. It was clearly the Ukrainian people. Obviously, the West was there to either encourage and, and then to support, but this support was much more moral than any other. Right. It was about the European flag. It was about the civilization of choice and all this. Right. This is not the, the, the West or the Americans who came up with. This is how the Ukrainians or a lot of Ukrainians. Again, I don't want to say most of it. But a lot of Ukrainians were simply buying or this is how they feel. Right. Now, you know, going back to concretely, it was clear that Vice President Biden was spoke against Yatsenyuk dismissal. He spoke about that in the parliament, in the Ukrainian Rada. And for most of the Americans and for most of the Westerners, again, this is the post-Maidan government. Either you guys, the best, quote-unquote, the best government of Ukraine ever will do reforms, or who will, right? So it is a kind of quintessential issue that, look, guys, we kind of, you know, we hopped you through the Maidan, we supported you, you know, against the Russian aggression, so please get your act together, you know, don't fight each other, and please deliver this together, what we agreed, and you sign up, you know, to do. So it is It is not that much a support for Yatsenyuk per se, it is a support of the post-Maidan government. Because the West has spent a lot of capital in supporting this government. Absolutely. Capital meaning loans and and, and other moral and other support. Exactly. We fully backed Ukraine. And, you know, like it was, it was, wasn't, there was no other choice, to be very frank, after the, the you know, the annexation of Crimea. I think, again, like I, I, I kind of keep this question is like, what would happen if the Russians wouldn't do what they did, right? Keep resurrecting simply because, again, this cemented the oligarchic rule. This is kind of made sure that the West had no other choice but to, but to put their weight behind Maidan. And I would risk to say that. That a lot of people, particularly policymakers in the West, would not like what they see in the Maidan. 
they were pretty much aware that this Maidan was not the Orange Revolution. But simply in the frame of the Russian aggressive reaction, the West didn't really have a choice, but just to throw its weight in support behind Ukraine. Whoever Ukraine was at that time, and this is still holds the Western policymakers. I think it shouldn't. Uh, I think, you know, like if, if really, if, if, if the West really keen on certain principles like democracy, uh, and, and I think for a current Ukraine and early elections, it's essentially a better situation, even that would show the lack of reform or that would stop, stop down even the slow reform process. But, the, you know, it's the entire Maidan and post-Maidan situation is, goes back to one thing, legitimacy. And it's clear that that legitimacy after, you know, the Maidan, what happened was very, very hard to come together. It took elections, three elections, right? And unfortunately, the post-Biden government behavior, governance, let's say, governance habit, are essentially eroding that legitimacy, very hardly tied up legitimacy again, very quickly because they, they were not willing to change the governance habit. So that is, that is, goes back and the West should not, if, if legitimacy is the key issue, the West shouldn't be against the main instrument of legitimacy, which is elections. You know what I mean? It's like if we're kind of running against our own principles, just like we did in Moldova, just to make sure that our partners are friends, because we were partners of friends in conflict or in trouble, are kind of losing the game at home. And we want to make sure that this is not the case. I think it's a wrong policy. Finally, uh, some analysts say that 2016 will be a crucial year for Ukraine. Uh, what's at stake and, and what should people pay attention to? Well, there's various issues. A, it is a Donbass conflict. This is this is the Minsk agreement and how it's going to play out and how much the Western relationship will also ultimately, particularly the Europeans. There is a divergence between the Europeans uh, when it comes to the Minsk agreement and the Americans, clearly. But the Europeans want a solution for that, just to making sure that this does not end up as a frozen conflict like it used to be. And, you know, the Ukrainians would, would in my mind, should support this. At the same time, the Ukrainians feel that the Europeans want to do it on their own. To, to make sure that the Ukrainians are paying the bill. You know, the Americans are coming from a much anti-Russian background. Simply, and they, you, you kind of hear, keep hearing now that, you know, Russia is the biggest threat, you know, from American military commanders as a military threat. And a lot of the, the NATO integrity and NATO itself uh, is a much stake uh, if you listen to the Poles and the Baltic countries, right? So, so, so there are more and more, there is a growing, it's a divergence, a growing divergence between the Europeans uh, and the Americans when it comes to Ukraine and essentially the entire region because of that. So, but, you know, like, so Donbass conflict and how it's going to unfold is going to be the single biggest uh, issue that we should say. The other thing is the legitimacy and how this uh, political crisis in Ukraine is going to play out, meaning the post-Maidan government, how long can stay very strongly connected to the reform process. With this, Ukrainians so far seen from the reform process is like they have to pay more and more for everything. This is not the reform per se, which they would like to see. Third factor, crucial factor is the economy. If Ukraine can produce grow and things can be at least slightly better, there's going to be a hugely encouraging sign for the Ukrainians that it's, they should keep quote-unquote fighting, meaning, you know, surviving and, and, and there is a better future. Uh, and number four, uh, obviously the European or the Western and Ukrainian relations and uh, the, the Russian sanctions, uh, I mean, the European sanctions or the Western sanctions in Russia, uh, which are due to expire in June, is another factor to watch because 
you know, this is something which a, a lot will play out. How Ukraine will be kept in the Western, in the center of the Western policy, or at least in the European policy, as a as a major European issue, or it's essentially going to be more and more forgiven or forgotten, simply because it's own shenanigans and governance, old governance habits, and for the simple fact that they want to resist both Russia and the West, just because they want to be right. When it comes to, you know, they're going to be mirrored in the Maidan and they post Maidan meets. Uh, and, and that's not, you know, meats are not policy and, and, and meats are usually not the reality. Either. And I, I'm, I, I am afraid, I think that, you know, in 2016, uh, the European and Ukrainian reality will catch up with this post-Maidan. That was Balaj Yarabek, a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye.